Well, good morning, church. I'm excited to continue our study of Galatians with you. As many of you know, I grew up in the church, and I placed my faith in Christ at an early age. I understood the basics of the faith, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. By placing my faith in Christ, he took the penalty for my sins, allowing me to be in heaven with him forever. Uh, That's probably how I would have explained it to you. Maybe I would have said something like, I placed my faith in Jesus, he died on the cross for my sins, so I can be with him and not go to hell, right? It's a lot of times how kids will describe it. But over my, my years, understanding the depth of those truths has grown, as it should. Paul talks a lot about being babies in the faith and uh, drinking spiritual milk. But then he says we need to move on. We need to grow up. We need to start eating solid food. And I guess in the life of a child... In the church, this happens somewhat naturally through my parents discipling me, uh, through Sunday school, through youth group, other events, summer camp, things like that. Uh, But despite all that, I recall some vivid transitions in my maturity as well. Just like a teenager goes through some spiritual growth spurts, my understanding of the gospel has deepened as well. It has grown and sometimes quite dramatically. I understand so much more the magnitude of my sin and the work that Christ did for me on the cross, and even more so what it looks like for me to live out my faith, to live for Christ. You could say that the churches in Galatia are growing through one of these spiritual growth spurts. Adversity is often how these growth spurts come to be, and uh, it's clear from our study that there's adversity happening in Galatia. That's why Paul's writing this letter to them. In fact, last week, Paul began to describe another spiritual growth spurt that Peter had to go through. Peter knew that he didn't have to live by the law. He knew that he could fellowship with Gentiles, and yet, through peer pressure, he deviated from that course, and it caused him to retreat to his former way of life. Paul's in the middle of responding to Peter in our passage here today. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to pick up right in the middle of where Paul is correcting Peter. He's explaining to him again the gospel. Peter knows the gospel, but he's explaining again the implications of the gospel for Peter. He's reminding Peter that justification or being righteous before God is not based on what we do, like following the law, but simply by faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul's not done explaining this to Peter, and he's giving it here for us, for the Galatians, so that we make sure we get it. Those who wanted Christians to continue living under the law were doing so because they had an immature understanding of what it meant to have faith in Christ and what Christ accomplished on the cross. They needed a spiritual growth spurt. So these Judaizers, they believed in Jesus. They they were Christians, or would call themselves so. They believed that Jesus had died. They believed that Jesus had resurrected. But they also believed that they still needed to follow the law. Perhaps you've had this line of thinking yourself before. Maybe you've thought that other Christians weren't holy enough. Maybe they just needed to do more to look like good Christians, like attend church more often or read their Bibles more. Or maybe they're a little rough around the edges 
and uh, needed to clean up their act a little bit. Maybe they drank or smoked or danced. Or perhaps you don't think they used their wealth the way uh, that you thought they should. They, they had too nice of a house or, or too flashy of cars. On the other hand, maybe you were wrecked with guilt like I was. Perhaps you struggled with your own sin. In my teenage years and even in my college years, I, I questioned whether I was saved. How could I be saved if I was struggling with such and such sins? Maybe you've been called a hypocrite. I know this is something I see from our culture. The world around us thinks that they know what it means to be a Christian. They think they know what a Christian should look like. And when Christians don't fit the mold or live up to their standards, we're called hypocrites. And in a way, this is what the Judaizers' accusation is against Paul. They want to know how Paul can call himself a Christian, how he can call himself righteous, but not live according to the law. How can Paul not live righteously and yet claim to be righteous? And they're thinking if he doesn't follow the law because he's following Jesus, then it would seem to them that Jesus condones sin. So take a look with me here in uh, Galatians 2, starting in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So pause right there real quick. What Paul's saying is, okay, we claim to be justified in Christ, we claim to be righteous, but if you look at our lives, we're not perfect. It's not like we've magically become perfect. We're still sinners. So does that mean that Christ is okay with sin? Christ died for us. He calls us righteous, but we're clearly not. So does that mean Christ is a servant of sin? He says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul adamantly denies that Christ would be a servant of sin. Friends, we know that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He abhors sin. Sin leads to death. Sin is in it is no way in which Christ wants us to live. But here's what the Judaizers are wrestling with. Okay, the, the circumcision party, right? Peter, Paul, and anyone else who doesn't live according to the law, according to their perspective, would be living in sin. Even though God has justified them, he's declared them righteous, like we saw clearly last week, they're still sinners, Perhaps more than that, just because God declares us righteous in his view doesn't mean that our lives look righteous each and every moment of every day. We're still found to be sinners, even though God, through Christ, counts us as righteous. So the argument from the Judaizers is we need Christ, but we need the law also to keep us sinless. And Paul practically uh, comes up with three counterpoints to this claim. He's going to lay them out for us, three reasons why the law is void, why the law isn't necessary to keep us sinless. And he introduces each with the word for. So you can see him there in verse 18 and verse 19 and then in verse 21. He, 
he introduces these counterpoints with the word for. So take a look at the first one in verse 18 with me again. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's saying that anyone who tries to keep the law is also living in sin. Although they may be trying their hardest not to. The law doesn't keep anyone sinless. In fact, it does the opposite. It just reveals how sinful we really are. The law is void because the law proves our sinfulness. We can't keep the law. We can only try to keep the law. And when we fail, it shows we are transgressors. Essentially, he's saying that by placing faith in Christ, the law was tore down in his life. If he tore it down and then he attempts to rebuild it after the fact, after he's placed his faith in Christ, it would negate what actually saved him in the first place. Think about it like this. Let's say, let's say someone was born unable to walk and they spent decades of their life in a wheelchair and they were able to do you know, most things that normal people would do because of the wheelchair, but they're still limited. The wheelchair is just evidence that they're not whole. They're not complete. And then all of a sudden, a new procedure comes out and they think they can, they can fix her problem, right? They can fix her back so that she's going to be able to walk again. She goes through the surgery. She has the surgery and miraculously, even without even uh, physical therapy, she's able to walk. It's incredible. It's a miracle, right? What if after the surgery, she told herself, you know, I'm sure glad I had that surgery. It, it's nice to have been healed, um, but I'm just going to continue to use my wheelchair uh, because I'm used to it. I can do everything I, I really need to or, or ever really needed to in my wheelchair. What if she woke up one morning, every morning, and walked over to her wheelchair, got back in it, and spent the rest of her day in her wheelchair? It'd be ludicrous, right? It'd be silly. She can walk. But she goes back to what she knows. Freedom was in the surgery, but comfort for her was in the wheelchair. And for Paul, the Judaizers are like being fully healed in Christ, but strapping themselves back in the wheelchair of the law. Paul wasn't declared righteous by the law in the past. If anything, the law just showed that he had a problem. He didn't have full freedom then, and through the law, he wouldn't have full freedom after placing his faith in Christ. In fact, just like our friend in the wheelchair, the law showed that he wasn't perfect. It shows that all of us aren't perfect. He couldn't live up to the law's standards then, so why would he pile the law back on, build the law back up in his life once he'd already been declared righteous by Christ? Right? There's no point in going back to the law. He can't keep it then. Why would he be able to keep it now? Living by the law after placing faith in Christ would not change the function of the law. The point of the law was to reveal our sin, not to fix our sin. It would, in fact, be worse because it would demonstrate that Paul didn't have faith in Jesus alone, but he was instead trusting in the law to save him. The law was a crutch. Christ brings full recovery. Living in the law after placing faith in Christ is like relying on a wheelchair when you have full capacity to use your legs. 
That's why he says in verse 19 that he died through the law. The law brought death. That's Paul's second point. In order for Paul to live to God, he had to die to the law. They're mutually exclusive. You can't have faith in Christ and live according to the law. The law essentially killed itself in Paul because it couldn't save him. And so the law is void because the law produces death. The law just exposed sin. The law just showed Paul's sin problem and our sin problem, everyone's sin problem. But that's what That's what the Judaizers want Paul and the Galatians to do. They want everyone to keep striving as they had been as a people for centuries, trying and yet failing to be perfect. But Paul wants everyone to know the law is not necessary for faith in Christ. Here's the thing. And I think this is at the heart of the concern of those in the circumcision party, right? There's a lot of fear for them by, that by throwing away the law, getting rid of the law, God's people who are supposed to be righteous and who are supposed to be holy, be holy as I am holy. It's there in the Old Testament. It's, it's repeated in the New Testament. Uh, but if we throw away the law, then we're not going to be holy anymore, right? We're not keeping the law. And so Paul spends a lot of time here on this point. And he wants to explain this in detail Because dying to the law has deep significance for us. Dying to the law and living for God needs a fuller explanation. Dying to the law through faith in Christ is not a call to unholy living. It's not a call to lawless living as the Judaizers are fearful of. Okay, Dying to the law doesn't mean we live however we want. Take a look at verse 20 with me again. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, here's one of those concepts I didn't get as a six-year-old. I didn't understand the nature, the full nature of what it meant to place my faith in Christ. I, I didn't understand that placing my faith in Christ was transformational. I thought it was merely transactional. I I thought I gave something and got something. I gave something like faith, and I got something like salvation, right? But but that's not the full nature of salvation in Christ. That's not all of what comes with placing your faith in Christ. When I placed my faith in Christ, I changed. I began a transformation process that hasn't stopped. It continues, and it's going to continue until the Lord returns. But for the Judaizers, their justification is transactional. Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Their status changes, but they continue to do what they've always done. For them, the law was transformational. At least they wanted the law to be transformational. The problem was it wasn't transformational. They thought it was transformational, But it was really just them striving and striving harder and harder to be perfect. They were still sinners in need of grace. They couldn't change themselves. They were still unrighteous and in need of justification. But when we place our faith in Christ, we die. There begins a new life, a resurrection of sorts. Because 
it's clear from the passage, while Paul says he died, and he died to the law, and he was crucified with Christ, it goes on to say he's not dead still, right? He's no longer still dead. His crucifixion is transformational. It's not final. Paul doesn't drive his own ship anymore. He's not king of his own castle. He's not master of his own domain. Instead, Christ lives in him. Paul's self-will dies. Christ's will lives. Now, it's clear that Paul is very much the man he always was. We can read in Scripture, Paul continues to live. He continues to write and and express his personality and, and who he is all while under the banner of Christ now. What Paul is saying is that his life, his world has been turned upside down and he looks and experiences everything differently now. Everything is different now because he's placed his faith in Christ. He's put on glasses, Christ's glasses, and sees things Christ's way now. This is evident by what he says next. And the life I now live in the flesh, right? I used to live in the flesh. I now live in the flesh a different way. I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying that he continues to live in the fleshly body, but he experienced spiritual death. His body remains, but he doesn't live in his body his way anymore. He doesn't work through his body the same way. He doesn't live in his fleshly body observing the law, doing things. No, he lives by faith. His life as a Jew, as he, it used to be lived, was lived by the law. But when he was crucified with Christ, the law in him, or at least the requirements of the law in him, were also crucified. And Christ ushers in a new way of living. Last week, Chris pointed out uh, that justification is a mega word of the Bible right? He, he described it as a mega word, the most important word in the Bible, or at least it's, it's in the top, top part, right? Okay? Well, there's a mega phrase in our passage here today. Verse 20 is a mega phrase in the Bible. There's other ones like it. They say very similar things, but we need to hear it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You don't casually become a Christian. It's not a casual process. You don't casually place your faith in Christ. Becoming a Christian is a spiritually violent process. It's a spiritually violent process where you die. You die. Your will is ceded to God. Your life as you know it is over because it belongs to him now. Sure, you, you go on living physically. Nothing changes necessarily physically in that sense. You're still in your body. You, you probably have all of the same physical struggles you always did, but the life you now live looks radically different, not because you're trying to follow a bunch of rules, but because Christ rules in your heart. Christ is the main spiritual force now living in you. Friends, we say this over and over and over and over again here at Harmony. We say this all the time because it's hugely significant. Faith in Christ is not a mental decision that you make. It's not merely in your head. 
It's a transforming reality that takes place in an instant and continues for all eternity. Faith is the way we live our lives in these bodies. Faith in Christ is not a moment-in-time decision that comes and goes. It's a starting point for a transformational journey that will continue until it is complete when Christ returns. And so you might ask yourselves, but what about the sins I commit, right? That's the Judaizer's main concern. Perhaps it's yours as well. Paul doesn't directly address it here. In our, he doesn't get into the nitty-gritty here. He's going to do that in Galatians 5. We're going to get to it, uh, but we're not there today. But uh, for the sake of encouragement, I want to go to Romans 8, because Paul does address our condemnation in Romans 8, and it's going to be on the screen. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Past, present, future sins. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order... Here it is, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in you. You don't have to follow every nitty-gritty rule of the law because Christ has already fulfilled it. It's already done because Christ already did it. He fulfilled it for you. And that means we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Galatians, Paul uses the words, we live by faith in Christ. It's the same idea. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We live by faith imperfectly, but we do not fear condemnation. This is a great parallel passage here. It it, it fills in some of the gaps of of maybe those those questions we have that, that Paul doesn't quite answer yet. Christ did for us what we couldn't do. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. We don't live by checking boxes, following rules, or trying to earn anything. We live by faith. We don't live life however we want, engaging in sin, the very thing Christ saved us from. We live by faith. Living by faith means we are not content in pursuing sin. And Paul gives the motivation for us for why We need to continually live in faith each and every day. It's it's simple, and yet it's so profound. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, that's the only motivation we need. It's as if Paul is saying, we don't need the law to live righteously because we're going to choose to live righteously because we live by faith in Jesus, because we recognize what he has done for us, what he has given for us, how much he loves us. The one I have faith in is worthy of me following him faithfully. I live by faith in Jesus because he loves me. I live by faith in Jesus because he's demonstrated for me his love for me by giving himself for me. 
You know, Jesus doesn't just say he loves us. It's really easy to say you love someone, right? We hear teenagers use this all the time. Now, teenagers, I'm not picking on you because adults say it all the time too. And a lot of times we don't mean it when we say it, right? We're speaking from an emotion. We're speaking from these feelings when in reality, most teenage boys wouldn't take a beating for their girlfriend or even a bullet for their girlfriend, right? They don't mean what God means by love because God was willing to show us how much he loved us. Jesus shows his love for me because he gave himself for me. He took my sin, he bore my shame, he hung on the cross, mocked, beaten, abused for me. And Jesus died for you. He did those things for you. Now, I know many of you have embraced that truth, and, and hopefully that reality keeps you going. It, it calls you to live faithfully for him each and every day. We have faith in Jesus. We live by faith in Jesus because he gave it all for us. Now, some of you here today may not know that. You may not have experienced that yet, but I'm telling you it's true. When Jesus hung on the cross a couple thousand years ago, he had you in mind. He was on the cross for your sins, and you can make his death effective in your life right now by placing your faith in him, by receiving it right now and starting a, a new life, a resurrected life, a crucified and resurrected life in faith in Christ. Listen, friends, Jesus loved us so much he gave himself for you. Now, some of us can't even give up 15 minutes for a phone call that we don't want to take. And I know, I know you know what I'm talking about, that, that number that comes up, and you're just like, I'm going to let that go to the voicemail. Straight to voice. I don't, I don't have 15 minutes for them. Maybe even it's going to take a half an hour, and, and we ghost them because we're not even willing to give up a little time. We do it in the grocery store, right? You see them at the other end of the aisle, you're like, I'm going to go to the next aisle. It's like, oh, I'm in the dog food aisle. I don't want a dog, but I'd rather be here than bump into them. We're not even willing to give up a little time for people. And yet Jesus was willing to give up everything for us. Everything. He, he, came, he left heaven. He gave up all the glories of heaven. He, he came to earth as a little baby. He lived three decades in a, a human body, dealing with the things we have to deal with. Uh, he did all those things. He, he had three years of hard ministry where he was, had a bunch of knuckleheads following him around. They weren't getting it. He was patient with them, but they, man, they were tough to work with. They were just like you and me, right? He did all of that on top of, and most importantly, enduring our sin and separation from the Father on the cross. He knew there was no way you could live up to the expectations of the law. We can't live a perfect life. If you look around this room, no one in here is perfect. And, and you're all looking at me, and I can say that. You're not looking at anybody perfect. None of us can. Even the most righteous people in the world, or the people who could claim to be the most righteous, have a life full of sin, regret, shame, and, and things that they can't take back. If perfection is the standard, which it is, we all fall far short. And that's essentially what Paul's final point is. Paul sums up everything in verse 21 by saying, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
if we could do it on our own, why in the world did Jesus come? If we could save ourselves, why in the world would Jesus go through all of what he did? And so Paul explains, lastly, that the law is void because the law does not produce righteousness. The law fails to produce righteousness. Only Jesus does that. If salvation can be achieved through the law, then why would Christ go through the agony of bearing our sin on the cross? It's really ridiculous to think about. There's a a scene in the movie Captain America, the first Avenger, where Steve Rogers is in military training. And he, he barely gets into training. He's scrawny. He's got health problems. He actually goes through a loophole to get in. And uh, he's, he's on this long run with his squad. He's trailing behind. You know, they're all fit and healthy. And, and they stop at a flagpole. And his sergeant says, whoever can get that flag from the top of the flagpole and bring it to me, can have a free ride back to camp. You don't have to finish the second half of this really long run we're doing. And so the guys are just scrambling. They're, they're pawing at each other. They're knocking each other away. They're trying to climb up the pole, and they barely get a few feet off the ground. The pole's too wide. It's too tall. They're just not going to do it. And so they try and fail, and, and the sergeant kind of mocks them a little bit. Nobody in 17 years has gotten that flag. Keep trying. He's goading them on. It's impossible to get this flag. And so they all kind of walk off to the side, and and Steve Rogers walks up. He pulls the pin out at the bottom of the flagpole. The flagpole drops. He walks over, takes the flag off, hands it to the sergeant, and gets on the Jeep for his ride back to camp, right? And so there was only one way to get the flag. It wasn't going to be accomplished by climbing the flagpole. They weren't going to get the flag the way they thought they could, the way they were striving to do it, they couldn't get the flag that way. But I guarantee once everybody saw him get the flag that way, they were never going to try it their way again. They were never going to try to climb the flag again, knowing there was an easier way. And Jesus' death is kind of like that. He wouldn't have done the hard thing to save us if there was a really simple possibility of us saving ourselves. He wouldn't have bore our sins in his body on the cross if we could have taken care of them ourselves. Essentially, Jesus wouldn't have climbed the flagpole, something impossible none of us could do if we simply could have pulled the pin out at the bottom and got it on our own. Friends, Jesus did not come to earth to go through all he did if there was another way for us to be justified. It's the only way for us to be justified. And and it's not the only way plus the old way. It's the only way because it is the only way. God's grace is extended to us by the cross of Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing you can do to earn your righteousness before God. There's nothing you need to do to maintain your righteousness before God. When you were justified in Christ, you were declared righteous for the rest of all eternity. There's no boxes to check. There's no lifestyle to maintain. Just to enjoy his grace. Now, since Paul doesn't address this in detail until chapter 5, I want to make sure I'm perfectly clear that 
just because we don't live by the law doesn't mean we live whatever way we want. That's what Paul's addressed when he says we live by faith. When we live Christ's way, we're not living however we want, we're living Christ's way. It's still a call to holiness. Church, there, there are Judaizers in our world today. Some of them are a part of the church, making up rules to give the appearance of righteousness. It's an easy thing to fall back into. I'm sure we're all guilty of it in some way at some time in our lives. There are others outside the church trying to impose expectations on Christians because they think they know what being a Christian is supposed to look like. We see this in the political realm. There's people who say, well, Christians should be in this political party. And they're saying, oh, no, 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 Christians should be in this political party. And Christians should do these things. And Christians should not do these things. And Christians in our world is telling us what we should do. But Paul tells us there's one way to live. We live by faith in Jesus. You know, there's really only one difference between Christians and the rest of the world. There's... There's not a group of good people and a group of bad people in the world where Christians are the good and everyone else is the bad. That's not the difference between us and the world. We're all sinners. We're all worthy of God's wrath. We all deserve it. We all fail. Christians, however, the difference between Christians and the rest of the world is that we admit our sin and through faith in Christ are justified by his atoning work on the cross. That's the difference. That's the only difference. Now, that difference makes a huge change in our lives for all eternity. But that is the core difference at the heart of humanity. 